We are looking at Paul before Agrippa in chapter 26. Why does Paul is Paul being uh, brought before Agrippa? What was the point of that? Because Festus wants to know what to tell Caesar? Yes. Festus has sort of inherited this uh, problem prisoner who appeals to Caesar, and Festus doesn't know what to tell Caesar he was being charged with. And so he knows that Agrippa has a good knowledge of these kinds of things about Judaism and so forth. And so maybe Agrippa, who's visiting as a you know, visiting governor, more or less, uh, can give him some insight about that. So that's, uh, that's the idea of this. Uh, and so we see in the end of chapter 25, uh, everybody getting together with great pomp and ceremony as King Agrippa and his sister Bernice are brought in, and uh, they have other dignitaries and so forth. And now in chapter 26, we're going to hear what Paul has to say to explain uh, what his situation is, more or less make a defense. So, would somebody read uh, chapter 26, verses 1 to 8? So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. By manner of life from my youth, <clears throat> my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews. By the Jews, O King. Why is it that it why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Agrippa tells Paul he can speak, and he does. This is the third uh, defense of Christianity, of his conversion and so forth that we've uh, read here. Obviously this is an important theme in the book of Acts. And in verses 2 and 3, why is Paul happy that it's King Agrippa that he's standing before? King Agrippa is ignorant of the, of the traditions of the Jews. He understands at least somewhat what they are, who they are, what they do. What kind of a judge would you like to stand before? But it is competent. Maybe. I don't know that you always would. <laughs> <laughs> Do you all sometimes look for the other kind? Yeah. Why? The way off easier. Yeah. I know the law too well. Well, so what kind of people are you representing? Guilty. Uh, yes. See, it all depends on that to me. If, if you are innocent and you've got a good case, then the more knowledgeable, the more background a man has, the better he scores, better chances you've got. You're, if you're guilty, I think you might have somebody who doesn't know anything about what they're talking about. You know, maybe you can snow them. So I think it's interesting that Paul actually thinks it's a, it's a good thing that he's standing before a very knowledgeable person 
in questions of, of Judaism. And uh, Paul speaks about uh, his, his life in verses 4 and 5, how he grew up and uh, his early life. What's he stressing there? Yes. So Paul himself had an excellent uh, background. He had a great Jewish resume. Uh, he was, uh, you know, with his own nation. He was in Jerusalem even from his youth. He was uh, a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Notice the our religion. Look back at uh, twenty five nineteen. Festus talks about this disagreement they had about their own religion. From Festus' viewpoint, this is their religion. But Paul identifies Judaism as our religion. This is, this is Paul's background. This is his heritage. And in fact, Paul sees what he's doing now in verses 6 and 7 as being what? It's almost a continuation of, of, of it is exactly that. Paul is saying that what I'm doing now is what? Well, it's the same thing that they have believed. It's the same thing they have believed. Specifically, what is it? It's the fulfillment of the promise. It's what the Old Testament had promised and was hoping for and looking forward to. Now this is the realization of that. So this is not something that is against Judaism. This is something that is precisely what they were looking forward to and hoping for. The true Jew has to become a Christian to remain a Jew. To remain a child of God because this is the fulfillment of what they were looking for. He says, it's for this Jewish hope that I'm being accused by Jews. It's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? That the Jews would accuse him for holding to the hope that they all shared in common. He says, why is it so strange to think that God raises the dead, which has been a big point of controversy, especially with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. Remember that statement he made when he's before the council in Acts 23, divided the whole group. It's a question of the resurrection. All right, comments and questions through verse 8. He's not intimidated at all, is he? <laughs> Never is. He's before these uh, very big, big shots, just speaking boldly. I think it's interesting, too, how compelling the truth is. And that, that uh, uh, honest people who heard him speak were going to follow the truth. Dishonest ones were not. And that's always what happens. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the case Paul's making is perfect. I mean, it's so weird that the Jews are accusing him of believing in their hope. Well, they don't. They don't ever argue with what he is teaching here. They they come up with other uh, other things. Yes. To get around what he's saying, but they don't. They don't try to refute what he's saying here. Good point. Yeah, they don't. You're right. Other thoughts. Okay. Um, Nine to eleven. So 
So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So he's back to talking about his former life, and what aspect of that does he emphasize here? His um, persecution of Christians. Yeah, and wow. This is one of the uh, clearest statements he has about how extreme that was. You know, how extreme was that? He was going to stomp it out if he could. Man. I mean, look at, he put him in, in many in, in prisons. You know, he was, he was casting his vote to put him to death. You know, punished them to, in all the synagogues, tried to force them to blaspheme, pursued them even to foreign cities. I mean, he is zealous about it. He's not just trying to deal with in Jerusalem. He's searching them out, even if he has to go a long ways to find them. He's obsessed with stomping out Christianity. Now, this is going to make the rest of this more in intriguing. I mean, when you see this that Paul had done, and they knew that. He was well known for that. What a surprise that he is a proponent of Christianity now and is being persecuted by his fellow Jews. He's, he's getting happening to him what he had given out. Comments and thoughts on this. I, I have heard it argued that uh, this, when Paul says, I cast my vote against him, that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin and thus would have had to have been a married man. What, what, is the, what's, what are your thoughts on casting his vote against? Well, I take that as a figurative expression. Oh. That he was in favor of that too, not that this was a formal vote that he cast. Um, you know, there's several things that make me think that he had not been a member of the Sanhedrin. For one thing, think about all the times that Paul went to great lengths to prove his Jewish pedigree. You know, think about like Philippians 3 and things like that. Man, if he'd been a member of the Sanhedrin, why wouldn't he have said so? Looks to me like that would have been the highest, you know, status point he could have mentioned and a very logical place for him to have done so. So that, that's one thing. Another thing is, he was young, you know, relatively at that time, from what we know had no family. Not the guy you would have expected to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which was more of those who were older and more established. Um, you know, no indication that he was ever a member of the Jewish aristocracy. He was well thought of as a zealot, as somebody who was really pursuing these Christians. But he doesn't strike you as being more of the stuffed shirt that would have been a member of the Jewish court. So I, I think the circumstantial evidence is against that. And just to base it on this, he cast his vote against them. I mean, I think we'd use that expression sometimes without meaning, or oh, I was actually in a council meeting and I, I raised my hand in favor of him being put to death. 
I don't even know if that's how they operate. I, I don't know if they ever, you know, took a vote on this. He's just saying, you know, I was right there on the same side. That's my take. You know. I think that's good. Plus the fact that he asked their permission when he wanted to go persecute. Good point. You'd think if he was a member of the council, he wouldn't need anybody's permission. Yeah. Letters from the chief priests. You know, if he's a council member, he writes his own letters, you'd think. So, yeah, good point. Shane? Also, I mean, the thing about the Sanhedrin, I mean, maybe this is a different thing, but Sanhedrin always seemed to be the type that had people do it for them. They just kind of, well, here, go kill the Christians and go take care of it. Right. You know, I don't see a, a man up that high in, in the society going and doing it himself. Like Paul. We know when the times they would send people, officers out to arrest Jesus and things like that. Yeah. I, I just think... Man, that's a slender that's a that's a slender thread to base that on. Particularly when we know I mean, there's no evidence that Paul had even been married and he would have had to have been a married man to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So I, I just think that's that's over interpreting that one statement. That's my take. Good good comment. Good question. I think that would fit with the stoning of Stephen. I mean, in fact, that's yes. always what I refer, think of when you, when you, you know, when they were putting them to death, I cast my vote against them. In fact, I'll hold your coat, you guys. Right. Yes. That. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that would be a perfect. Uh, and yeah. and the indicates right. that that was as close as he came to being part of the, the assassins. I don't know. You know, he, he didn't, he locked them up and all that and, and cast his vote against them as far as killing them, but it doesn't look like he actually... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. Is there any statement where he actually says that he killed them? I'm not sure that there is. He killed Stephen? Well, I mean, you know... That Paul yeah, killed... or he killed other Christians. Well, we know he killed Stephen, not maybe physically himself. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the question. I mean, that's what he... Basically, him doing what he did, he's killing Stephen, but Lycus being the very one who cast the stone. Uh, I don't know I think, that we... I think he... What I read in this is he's actually admitting how wrong he was. You know, he and he admits how he threw him in prison. And he admit, so I get the impression that if he had actually killed him, he would have said, and I, and I stoned him, you know. He didn't go that far, but he said, and yeah, I was right there encouraging him and, and voting against him. And You've got, this, you got the statement in Acts 9-1, now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. But again, I don't know that that would prove he actually committed the murder. So, we probably just don't have enough evidence to, to be sure that he cast the stones. Makes no difference what he's saying here. He was right with them and very much in favor of that and aiding and abetting that, however those technical points were. It's just, I mean, you see him here as very, very zealous, <laughs> you know, obsessed, I don't know, uh, kind of a tyrant about this. Uh, and so, I mean, if he had just been kind of a, you know, sort of a, well, I'll go along with it kind of a guy, it wouldn't have been as drastic a change as when he is pursuing them like this. Other thoughts, questions? All right, uh, 12 to uh, 18. While thus engaged, I was journeying to, to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on, on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things which I will appear to you, uh, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness and sin of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Okay. So he's on his way to Damascus with the commission of the chief priests at midday, and what happens? The day gets even brighter. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the time that the brightness of this light would be the dimmest, you know, in the noonday sun. But this bright light shone, and they fell to the ground. He heard this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, adds this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Fighting a losing battle? Yes. What does that mean? You're making it harder on yourself. Yes. Why? Because you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's like God has tr been trying to goad him into, you know, doing differently, and he's been kicking against that. You know, he's been fighting a losing battle because he's been fighting against the Lord, you know, and you can't really do that successfully. And uh, so, you know, the Lord wakes him up right here. And he's like, who are you, Lord? Can you imagine what Saul felt? We've been through this. This is the third time. But that still must have been just one of the greatest shocks you could ever imagine. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then to immediately be told, you know, stand up. I'm going to appoint you as a minister and a witness. You know, and you're going to uh, open the eye, their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. You've got so much light and seeing imagery here. You have that light in verse 13. And then he's going to be a witness of what he's seen in verse 16. Now in verse 18, he's going to open their eyes to turn from darkness to light. And then uh, in verse 23, he'd be the first to proclaim light uh, to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. So, you know, this light of God that's shown is really a part of his work of enlightening people to the truth of the gospel. And so this is the mission that the Lord immediately gives him, shows the light, speaks to him, shows him where he's wrong, and then says, I've got, a wor I've got work for you to turn these people from darkness to light and from Satan to God and uh, so forth. And a really good statement, really, in verse 18 of the gospel when it's all said and done. Pretty succinct uh, presentation of that. Comments and questions on this event. Yes. I have a quick question. Um, in verse 13, um, I, d I didn't ever remember him being with other Paul or Saul, being with other people. Did He was. Okay, and were they blind? No. You know, it's really interesting. You know, when you put all the accounts together, it looks like they saw something, but they never saw Jesus. And it looks like they heard something, but they never heard Jesus. 
you know, so the, the experience was more vague for them. It was a real experience, but they didn't have the real communication with Jesus that Saul did. They ended up being the ones that led Paul by the hand, because he was blinded, into the city of Damascus. I wonder what they thought about all that after it happened. Wow, you would think that would have had quite an impact. Yeah, you would, you would. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe they were converted too, I have no idea. They weren't necessarily on the same mission he was. It was just traveling together, possibly. Now, I've assumed they were on the same mission, but do I have a good reason for assuming that? I always heard it, I mean, I've always just, it just says traveling companions or something, but... The men who traveled with him. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, do you hook up other people going the same direction and... Well, in Acts 8, when it says, in verse, verse 3, when it talks about... Uh, and about, well, verse 2, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I assume, and of course it's an assumption, but you would assume that he would have had people with him doing that. You wouldn't think that he would have done that by himself. I don't know, but... That's what I've always assumed, really but I, I guess I don't really have a good, strong reason sure. to say that. You uh, stop and rethink the time. So I don't, I don't have an answer to that. Somebody have a further comment on that? More insight? As high as Paul seemed up on the totem pole, he wasn't the highest yet. He seemed to lead. At least people were at least looking to him for leadership. So I would think he would have had someone with him. You would think. I mean, again, it's an, you know, it's an assumption. Other comments? I, I couldn't imagine them being with him on this trip and not having something to do with his purpose. Right. Uh, I think it's interesting too. You pointed out there's so much light here that Paul's blind in in this. Uh, now, is is this that he is telling Agrippa? Is this what the Lord told him on the occasion, or is this what was told him by Ananias? Yeah, we know that Ananias said that. So I don't know if he's condensing this or if the Lord actually said some of those things yeah, to him at the time that. also. It's a good question because because we do know that Ananias reported some of those things to yeah. him. Well, the, the, could he be saying that the Lord said these things even if it wasn't him? Yes, it, it could be yeah, that he said it to Ananias. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, certainly. I don't, I don't think... If this was simply Ananias' statements that the Lord had him say, I don't think there'd be any contradiction with this passage. But that may be the case. It doesn't make a lot of sense either if I'm thinking about this logically. If I'm thinking, okay, these guys just happen to be with Paul or Saul on the way here. Also, this guy falls over blind. Why would they drag him to Damascus? Well, I assume he told them to. Well, exactly. But if they were just strangers, they were just kind of why would they? They would just think he was you know, crazy or whatever. I mean. Yeah, I mean, they were traveling with him. So, uh, you know, at any rate, they're, they're with him on this journey. I mean, the question of what they were there going for is maybe... In. But if they were on the same mission, he obviously didn't tell them what he heard, or they wouldn't have helped him get to the <laughs> Or maybe they would. I mean, maybe they were moved by this, even though they didn't see the same thing. I don't know. Uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe they'd have killed him before he got there. That's right. Nineteen to twenty-three. 
Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting, of re befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, one of the things that you see in this, I mean, Paul is not just giving his explanation. I mean, he's laying the groundwork to appeal to Agrippa to obey the gospel. You know, so he tells him, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I, I was declaring to Damascus and Jerusalem that the Gentiles should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And they tried to put a stop, but I obtained help, and I stand to this day testifying to everybody. So he's, he's, he's really telling Agrippa what the Lord wants him to do. You know, this is what the prophets and Moses said, so I'm preaching and teaching the very fulfillment of what they had said, that Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, was to suffer, and because of the resurrection, he'd be the first to proclaim light to the Jews and to the Gentiles. So, Paul is really wasting no opportunity to testify about the Lord. It's so cool <coughs> just to see how, in every situation... Paul turns it into a sermon. You know, we need more of that spirit. You know, we would have been intimidated, perhaps. I mean, he's on trial. This is a critical event in his life. This is King Agrippa. This is all the big shots. You know, it would have been hard to just stand there and preach It'd be hard to say, you know, this is what I'm testifying and, and go on the offensive to try to persuade them to obey the gospel. But how many times do Paul and Peter and others in the book of Acts do that? They're constantly looking for an opportunity, looking for somebody who's listening, and they'll twist anything into a chance to talk about the Lord. It's just tremendous. All right, comments and questions to this point. The other day, Shane had a driving test, and before he, he took it, he said, he said, Dad, should I try to carry on a conversation with the woman while I'm driving? I said, well, probably not. He said, well, should I talk to her about the Lord? I said, well, I guess it just depends how you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if you're driving really bad, it may give you a real opportunity to talk about eternity. <laughs> yeah, right, you, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, the early Christians did. They took advantage of those well, what's it What's interesting to me about this is he is not trying to, to get out of anything. Okay. And what he's saying may cause him more difficulty. Even. Exactly. Yeah, surely he could have, uh, you know, said this in a way to sound more palatable to them. <coughs> Maybe appeal to get off the hook or whatever. And you see his attitude in all this that he says in verse uh, 22 that he had, to, he had obtained help from God. <clears throat> I think most people would look at this as a, you know, <laughs> he's, he's been left out to, Where to are you, God? You know, hung out to dry and, yeah. But uh, he sees it as God blessing him in this. 
Amen. Well, if it helps to know, she's coming to church Sunday that tells you how driving tests work. <laughs> but uh, in verse 23, I've got a question. It says that Christ will be the first to rise from the dead. What does that mean? Because there have been people in the Old Testament that have risen from the dead. Well, that's not what my translation says. What's your translation say? And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Mine says that the Christ that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Well, what translation do you have? NKJV. Huh? Was anybody got the ESV? The same thing. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what the what the translational evidence is. I mean, you could say Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead in the context of he was the first fruits and then everybody would be raised after that. Uh, but that's, I don't know. I, I, it's been a while since I studied this. I don't remember if there was something about the translation. He was also called the firstborn of the yeah. dead. So, I mean, in the sense that, yeah, he's more or less the ruler over death when we call him the firstborn of the dead. Right. He didn't die again. Yeah, and everybody, I mean, everybody yeah. else died again. I mean, went back to the grave. And number two, the idea of, of him, what the firstborn being, the, the prominent one, or the preeminent one, rather. So, I mean... Also, could it be signifying maybe a spiritual death? First one to come back from an actual spiritual death. Could that be the idea of just... I don't think so. I don't know, eternal death or whatever. You know, there's been people talking about how he's been, he was in hell or whatever. I mean, could that be what he's referring to? I don't think he was. I wouldn't think so. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, the resurrection from the dead just means he died and then he was raised. His body was raised. Other thoughts? 24 to 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So, what's Festus's uh, outburst? Yeah, you're out of your mind. You know, Festus concludes that if it doesn't make any sense to him, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you're just crazy. You know, you've learned so much, you just, you don't make sense anymore. So he questions Paul's sanity. He does not understand any of this. You know, he's not a Jew, doesn't understand Judaism, hadn't been on the job long. You know, from his standpoint, it's what he said back in, uh, you know, 2519, they had this argument about a dead man that Paul said was alive. 
You know, that's all he gets out of this. You know, it sounds pretty strange to him. But that, how does Paul respond to that charge? He said he's not mad. I'm not out of my mind. That's that's just like what you see in some other passages. You know, you think about John chapter 8 with Jesus, where they said in verse 48, Do we not say rightly that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. You know, it's like, wow. (laughs) You know, just so much calmness in responding. You know, they accused Peter and the apostles of being drunk on the day of Pentecost. No, we're not. We're not drunk, (laughs) as you think we are. You know, just, you know, what do you do when somebody makes some false, wild accusation against you? That's hard. That's, That's a hard place to be in. What's our tendency? argue back. Defend ourselves. Yeah, just blow up and, you know, rat and rave and carry on and just prove we are bad, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but what better way to deal with this than just to calmly deny the false allegation? What else are you going to do? Somebody says you got a demon. I don't. I mean, you know, you're going to if you go out fly off the handle, you just prove it. <laughs> so I just appreciate that calmness. And, and then he doesn't really let that get him off track. He says, for the king knows about these matters. I know he does. None of this happened in a corner. In other words, this has been um, a matter of public knowledge. I mean, you know, Agrippa's been around long enough. He knows all about this. I mean, so, so, you know, Agrippa understands, and then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, now why would belief in the prophets be of uh, significance at this point? Because they prophesied about Jesus. Yeah, I mean, go back to things he said, like in verses 6 and 7, where he said that he's on trial for the hope of his promise. It was the hope that the prophets predicted, that they wrote about. And so, him turning to Agrippa and saying, do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? I know you do. Wonder what the court did about that time. (sighs) He's trying to convert King Agrippa. (laughs) Of all things. You turn to King Agrippa and you say, now do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Whoa. I mean, you don't do that when you're on trial. You know, Paul is seeing this as an opportunity to evangelize Agrippa. And he sees the acceptance of the prophetic testimony as a key in turning to Jesus. So he says, do you believe that? I know you do. Isn't that amazing? And who knows what Agrippa was trying to say back. It looks to me, but everybody has a different view, is that Agrippa's slightly embarrassed by this and kind of brushes it off. You know, this wasn't supposed to be an evangelistic service. You know, in a short time you'll persuade me to be a Christian. You know, almost like he's sort of trying to avoid this, like kind of just say, you know, what's this all about? Uh, now, there's various ways to translate this and there's various understandings, but that's what I take it as being. And Paul said, you know, I wish that whether it took a short or a long time, that all of you become just like me, except for these chains, you know, 
so he is trying to persuade him to be a Christian. A- apparently, Agrippa saw that. I suspect everybody saw that. I mean, why else would you turn to Agrippa and say, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. But I mean, can you imagine King Agrippa in front of all these people saying, well, yeah, you've got a point there. Uh, tell me more. You know, he's got to kind of act like this doesn't faze him. I don't know whether it did or not. Comments and thoughts through 29. Well, if, he, if this just is uh, just sort of a smart aleck retort, Paul doesn't let him get off, off uh, track there. Either. You're right. But, and he just says, I, that's, that's what I'm aiming at. Yes. <clears throat> that was Paul's mission that everyone become such as he was. A follower of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's, we've lost so much of that zeal. You know, we don't look at it that way so much anymore. But that's what we need. You just look and, and well, Agrippa, does he have a soul? You know, he needs to be taught the gospel and he needs to be converted and become as Paul is. It's really encouraging to see those the way he takes advantage of that opportunity, Cass? You know, one thing I see that's really amazing, Garrett, something that I may struggle with is he's he's so respectful. And when you kind of see it as like, well, maybe, well, he, to me it looks like he's being respectful towards them. You know, that to me would be kind of hard. Because automatically if something says something, if someone says something about me, I get defensive. You know, so I just see that as pretty cool how, you know, he's respectful towards them. Yes, he's, he's definitely also calm and composed. You know, you don't see him as, you know, emotional about this. He's just very steady and determined and undeterred. Say? I think that's something you know, interesting. We kind of missed this before, but you just said, you know, I'm not mad. I'm not crazy. And I think a lot of times we're so eager to defend ourselves because we take ourselves way too seriously. <coughs> We just take ourselves so seriously. Like, well, if someone ruins my reputation by saying this, I can't serve the Lord. Well, you're taking yourself too seriously. You're putting too much dependency on yourself. Uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of times we need to, we probably need to see ourselves a little bit less seriously as we, as we look at ourselves. No doubt. Carrie, when he says in verse 26, it says this thing was not done in a corner. Um, and it seems like to me he's tying that with back with verse 23, that Christ would suffer, they would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Um, you know, it, it's it's amazing that, I mean, Christianity wasn't something that was just, you know, you hear about this over, you know, a couple of people saw this vision of Mary and all of a sudden it became, I mean, this was something that, I mean, the evidence for Christianity was so great. And, and, and the evidence of all that Christ had done was so great that, you know, you really wonder how people could refuse it, and yet, you know, the Jewish people saw the things that Jesus did, and they were, like Boyd said, they, they didn't have honest hearts, they weren't willing to receive it, but, I mean, the evidence was there. Amen. It was. Shame. It's also hard for us to imagine that we would ever stand in front of someone so high up and all these people that, you know, the world respected and say, I wish you were like me. That, that, I mean, number one, that would feel kind of arrogant to us, I think, somewhat. And it shows what Paul's mindset is. He's not saying because of me, because of what I am. He's saying because of what the Lord has made me. But Paul's just humility, even being able to say that, shows the utmost signs of humility that he can just say that about himself without, without being arrogant. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Good point. 
Other thoughts? Well, so, verse 30, you know, they confer, and what's the conclusion? Yeah, you know, I mean, really, he could have been released if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. You know what he reminds me of, what this reminds me of? You know, how many times was Jesus declared innocent and yet not released? You know, it's the same thing that happened with Paul here. There's a lot of parallels between, say, the last chapters of Luke and the last chapters of Acts. And you see this repeated declaration of innocence and yet he's still in prison. You know, that's, that's kind of interesting. All right, thoughts and comments on chapter 26? Doesn't speak well for uh, Festus, or Felix, or Festus, actually. The, Either one. In other words, he's been in prison for how long, and he's not even <laughs> in there... Yeah, Festus is new on the job, but yeah, Felix had been around for a couple of years without freeing Paul or doing anything. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what are they doing? Nobody's ever managed to pin any kind of a charge on Paul that stuck, and yet they haven't freed him. Still waiting for the commander. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. So when the commander comes, I'll make a judgment. That yeah. was two years later. Yeah, no right. commander. And for Agrippa to say, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That seems really doubtful, doesn't it? That, that he would have been set free. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, he's not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment, and yet they hadn't set him free. That's right. Even before he appealed to Caesar. Almost like he's saying, if he had actually received a fair trial, he should have been released. <laughs> yeah, and that's the truth. And he's Pilate, you know, he's innocent, I'll punish him and release him. If he's not guilty, what are you doing punishing and releasing him? Sorry. Other thoughts, comments? All right, so you go into chapter 27. And uh, this is Paul uh, going to Caesar. And, uh...